Uh, a number of years back, my wife took me to a movie. It was a little bit of a different experience. She said, hey, as we go up to the theater, I want you to go ahead and close your eyes and block your ears. So I'm like, all right. So uh, I go ahead and shut off my senses. She buys tickets. We walk into the uh, movie theater. I sit down and she says, all right, go ahead and open your eyes. I open my eyes and there's like a black screen in front of me. And honestly, I was so excited. <laughs> I had no idea what movie I was about to see. I didn't know what was showing, what was playing. And so my, my attention was enraptured on these opening credits. And as like names popped up of actors I'd recognize and you know, that title sequence began, I just felt so excited. And I think from that day, I've had a bit of a fixation around the opening credit scenes for TV uh, shows or for movies. So if you watch shows like, um, like Severance or, or Ozark, often in the opening credits, they give you some visual clues about the kind of story you're going to see. It's not enough that it will kind of give away the plot that's ahead. But if you've already seen the movie or TV show and you go back and watch that opening credits and you can say, oh, I can see it now. Like these puzzle pieces that can all fit together. We're going to read a text today that I think at first blush kind of feels like it's, it's all that's wrong with Christian faith. It's a bit of a, a, a trope or a stereotype of these are the things we want to uh, get rid of when it comes to the stumbling block of Christian faith. But I think if we, if we hold it as, as kind of flashes in that opening credit scene to try and figure out what kind of a story are we in, then those bits can become really helpful for us to figure out the narrative that we could find ourselves in. Um, we've been in the book of Colossians for the last number of weeks where uh, Paul wrote this letter to a young church that's trying to figure out faith. How do you hold on to the story of Christ amidst tons of pressures and tons of confusing messages? And we learned last week that Paul said, for those who welcome Jesus, there's this radical solidarity with him that you actually share in his death and you share in his resurrection. And by doing that, you're a new creation. You're a new person in Jesus. So she says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So now here in this text today, we'll look at some of the earthly things, the not of God things that Paul is, is talking about. And again, remember, this is a, a little bit intense as we open it up, this is uh, Colossians 3, 5 to 7. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. Well, it's short and sweet, but it, it does kind of name some of those baggage points we can easily feel in Christian faith. Is Christian faith really about moralism, about kind of doing good stuff with your life? And is it really about restrictions around our sexuality? And then the second bit, what about this whole wrath thing? Is one of the motivations for coming towards the way of Jesus to avoid the wrath of God. These are pretty big baggage points for us. So for today, we'll take a, a quick blitz 
through these big ideas of, of sex, wrath, and desire. And to see how those things be flashpoints in the, in the big story of what God is doing and making a new world through Jesus. So you're ready for it. It's going to be a good day. Uh, so we read before, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs here, earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Uh, all those descriptive words there, you know, whether it's immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, uh, greed, those are all um, things that have sexual connotations in antiquity. And Paul here is saying that all those things kind of form this five-headed idolatrous beast. Now, when you hear about sexual uh, immorality as an idol, that might not feel like an, an immediate correlation you know, in modern sensibility for sure. But for, for Paul, he says, an idol is anything that you kind of put in front of you that gets your attention, that then you form an attachment to. Things that kind of claim your allegiance that you think are worthy of, of your energy. It is those are idols, things that you prop up and you get attached to. So Paul says, hey, when it comes to these things that are earthly in nature, things that are not of God in nature, these things that are sexually corrupt, put them to death. Again, sounds pretty severe, but it's that language of, of baptism saying, if you have died with Christ, put to death those earthly ways and live as a new creation, as someone who's raised with Jesus. Now, I think for people who are kind of looking into the life of the church, it's, it's easy to think, man, Christians have nothing but restrictions and judgments around our sexual lives. And there's a, a whole aura there of, of kind of condemnation or trying to evaluate our behaviors. You can read this little list of sexual immoral behaviors and think, oh, here's the little Tisk, tisk, tisk. God doesn't like those things. So here's, here's my effort at a, a sex positive message. Uh, sex isn't a trap and sexual desire isn't a mistake. And our sexuality is a great gift. It's meant to draw us out of ourselves and towards the other. Um, our sexuality has a, a massive impact on who we are. Whether you're single or you're married, whether you're uh, divorced or, or widowed, young or old, your sexuality constitutes a huge part of your identity. And when it works well, our sexuality draws us out of ourselves towards another. I remember a little while ago, I was with a group of friends and uh, one of the friends that was usually in that group had recently died of cancer. It was our first time gathering since the funeral just to, to hang out. So we're just having some chats and uh, one person in the group just kind of stopped us and said, hey, I think we should just take a, a minute and talk about our friend who's not here and talk about the grief that we all share together. The room went silent and it felt a little bit awkward at first. And then bit by bit, we all started to share a bit of our own process of, of grief, tell some old stories, had some laughs about some good memories. And that night honestly became one that I'll never forget as we were 
slowly drawn out of ourselves and we form this really beautiful way of attaching to each other as we share these, these bonds of, of sacred memories. When God comes to, to baptize our sexuality, he's not trying to you know, stifle it. He's not trying to you know, stoop over it, ready to kind of you know, swat our hands, say, no, don't do that, that's bad. It's, it's just the opposite. He gives us a great gift, a beautiful gift of what it means to be human, to be drawn out of ourselves and drawn towards the other. Our sexuality at its best is, is creative and life-giving. And I don't mean that in the sense that, you know, creative life-giving, it makes babies. Just the opposite. It's creative and life-giving that it, it builds imagination. It builds fulfillment. The best things about what it means to be human come from our relationships with each other. And Paul here is saying, because sexuality is so important to what it means to be a human, to be a new creation in Christ, these tipping points when we set up idols for wrong attachments, that's really high stakes. That really matters for how we live in the the world. There's just no room for that kind of behavior. You got to put that stuff to death because a, a selfish sexuality that's not focused on the other, you know, will destroy the whole gift. A little while ago, I took two of my daughters to the playground. My kids are all small. So, um, there was a little teeter-totter there and I have to like prop them up in the teeter-totter to get them going. So get them both in place and think, all right, this is going to be great. Little teeter-totter day in the sun. Kids going to love it. So I go ahead and I push one end down and the kid is in the air. It's like, yes, it's beautiful. And the kid is on the ground. It's like, no, I want to be in the air. But oh, don't worry. Don't worry. It's going to be your turn. So I put her in the air like, oh, look at that. You're so happy. And the ones on the ground says, no, it's my turn to be in the air. They went back and forth. And what I thought was going to be this blissful day of teeter-totter paradise was just screaming and tantrums and yelling. All eyes on the playground were on me as I'm trying to juggle these two crying toddlers in utter chaos. And I thought, this is a great picture of what happens when you pit people's interests against each other. When both are trying to figure out what would serve me and not the other, you disrupt the whole design of what God's put in place. Dr. Gordon Neufeld is a developmental psychologist here in Vancouver, and he talks about any sexual experience we have as being deeply bonding. He talks about sex acts as, as human contact cement, that it's really vulnerable and it's really intimate to have sexual experiences. And when you do, you form attachments in those places. That's why Paul's saying, hey, it's high stakes if you form attachments in the wrong places. It'll not only kind of do a whole world of damage, but it will inhibit you and trip you up from forming an appropriate or healthy attachment with others. This text here is meant to be kind of a, you know, a little finger wag of these are the things that God doesn't like. It's a, hey, pay attention, beware of where you get attached with your sexuality. This stuff is potent and powerful and it's meant to draw us out of ourselves towards the other. You go, a little sex ed in church. Who would have thought on a Sunday morning we'd come and have a little sex talk? Okay, now that we're all a bit on the edge, let's go to something a little bit lighter, like uh, 
the wrath of God. That seems, uh, seems appropriate. After Paul lists these, this list of these five idols of sexual attachment, he goes on to say, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. The wrath of God is coming. That's not a tattoo you see a lot on people's arms, you know, who are like, you know, all into Christian faith. Look at my new tat from, from Colossians. Uh, this is a big stumbling block for a lot of us. How do you have a, a picture of a God who is full of love and full of wrath? Uh, it kind of feels like, you know, the villain Two-Face from Batman, where, where you're just not totally sure which version of God you're going to get. And if you do a, a poll of most people and ask, hey, how do you think God feels about you? A lot of us think that God's out to get us, that he's not happy with us, that he's got some sort of a punitive impulse over our lives. Well, Hank, here's good news for all of us today. God is not coming to smash us. He, he's not coming to make everyone pay for the bad things they've done. And he's not a bully saying that if you don't listen to me, I'm going to make you suffer for it. God's, God's wrath is actually a good thing. It's, it's his active engagement of love towards all that's broken and out of joint in the world. His wrath is his anger at the things that don't fit and that don't line up. And it's his commitment to say, I'm going to remedy that. I'm going to fix those bits that feel out of joint. When I think about God's wrath, I think about movies like uh, Tombstone. Like you got to love a good old Western movie to try and figure out the wrath of God. When you've got the, the baddies who are in the town, you know, trying to like, you know, run over the saloon and they're having their way with everybody in, in the little village. When, when Wyatt Earp and the law rolls in, it's a really good thing. It's a sign of, of peace and order and justice finally coming to town. It's not a different kind of hostile takeover. It's the ushering in of something good, something right, something of peace. When the scriptures talk about God's wrath, it's actually a, a beautiful picture. You read in Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant, everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Why? For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. I think this is the big kicker for us. When it comes to the wrath of God. The best picture we have is not something down the road of a future day of, of things being made right. The best picture of God's wrath is actually behind us. It's, it's at the cross of Jesus. This is the best image we have of God's great commitment to say all the things that are disjointed, all his anger, the things that are out of place, he'll assume all of that in his body, all the things that are twisted and broken and corrupt, and he'll escort that to the grave, seal it in the tomb, and then rise in victory in his life to say, these things will no longer hold sway over those who live in the new creation of Christ. This is not a warning here of saying, hey, live smart or God's gonna smash you. 
It's saying, hey, live in a different kind of way because all these immoral, broken behaviors, that's what led us to the cross of Christ. That's what made the cross necessary for God's great work to try and reconcile all things to himself. So don't perpetuate those disjointed elements. Because of those things, God's future wrath is still coming. His commitment to set all the world right where heaven and earth will look the same, where they'll begin to mirror each other. Our, our family worked with a, a behavior interventionist a little while ago. Uh, we had one of our kids who had some uh, emotional complications. So we had an interventionist come in and their job was to watch my wife and I parent for a few days, which is incredibly nerve wracking. And then at the end of it, we sit down and we talk about what they see. If you ever want a lesson in humility, go ahead and hire a behavioral interventionist. It's going to be great. So we sit down and we're talking through the emotional outbursts that we see in uh, one of my kids. And uh, the behaviorist says, hey, you're really good at where uh, your daughter has uh, an emotional outburst, a tantrum. You, you pull her aside, uh, you go to another room and you talk through kind of her feelings and her emotions. But here's, here's the bad news. That's not working for you. Um, those tantrums are, are cries for attention and for interaction. And by pulling her aside and having the emotional debrief, you're actually reinforcing her behavior that those tantrums are working for her. Here's what I want you to try and do. The next time she has uh, a tantrum, try and put her in a safe place, put on a little timer for five minutes and say, uh, love, I'm going to give you five minutes to have a bit of a cool down to to leave you here to own devices. I'll come back and check on you. So my wife and I tried that out. And honestly, it was really hard. It was pretty torturous to try and, and leave a little kid in a bit of an uh, emotional meltdown state. Um, but I think it's kind of a picture of what the warning is here in this text. Why is Paul saying like, hey, be careful because the wrath of God is coming. You see, if you keep forming these wrong attachments, at some point, God just leaves you to the consequence of your actions. If you don't want him to keep intervening in your life, he'll give that to you. That's part of his heart of love to allow freedom that even injures the self. For those who, who want to have those inward kind of bents, the self-interested life, he'll say, if you choose that, you can have it. Well, he, he continues to echo us back towards himself with his, with his love. Anything that captures our attention will form an attachment. That really matters to the things that we then prop up in front of us. Okay, so we've done a bit of a dive into, into sex, a little bit of a look at wrath. Let's go here now to the idea of desire as we kind of finish it up. Uh, desire is kind of the thing that undergirds both these things. You know, sexuality, that, that big drive to be pulled out of ourselves towards the other. Wrath, the big desire to make things right, to make them fit, that there's proper alignment in the world. And I think the reason this comes up in Colossians, because he's saying that, hey, as you try and figure out how to live the Christ way in the world, try and get your desires to match up with the way of Christ. There's a philosopher that I like a lot called Rene Girard. And he talks about all desire we have is mimetic 
or that it's mirrored. So anything that you really crave or a longing that you have in the world, something that you, you saw somebody else have, and you began to, to mirror that craving or that longing yourself. You know, all marketing or advertising works the same way. You try and put an image in front of somebody with the hope that over time they would mirror that same desire in their own lives. If you've got uh, kids like I do, if you put out some toys in front of them, you know, and one kid grabs one toy, immediately all the kids want that one toy. It's the thing that now is desired by everybody else. They think, oh, if you want that, then I want it too. And we all operate this way. And it can be a, a fascinating experiment to try and talk to a friend or, or a therapist about some of the deep desires you have, the deep longings you have, and where it might have been in your story that you first had those desires mirrored for you. Where you first saw that in someone else and thought, yeah, I want that. That's the kind of person I want to become or the thing that I feel driven toward. I think that, that idea of, of mirrored desire makes a lot of sense. I think it's also why we're here on, on a Sunday. Why do, we, why do we show up? Part of it is that we have an image in front of us that could mirror for us the kind of desires we hope to have in the world. And we set up a cross here, not because we're trying to pay homage to the story of Jesus, not out of a commitment to Christian decor. This is, this is our picture of what it means to live in the Christ-shaped way, to live in self-giving love. And all of us come facing the cross to try and figure out how can we have a life that mirrors the cross and the self-giving love of God, to have those desires born in us. There's a song uh, by a band named uh, Goche called uh, Hearts a Mess. And it's featured in the movie uh, Great Gatsby, which that should be a you know, required viewing for anyone trying to figure out, wait, is, is the self-interested life really destructive? Just watch The Great Gatsby and you'll see a great display of everyone who has excessive self-interest and it goes bad for everybody. Uh, but in the song by, by Goche, the words say, your heart's a mess. You won't admit to it. It makes no sense. I'm desperate to connect. And you, you can't live like this. You know, all of us here in this room live disjointed lives, things that don't fit. And we show up here to try and figure out how can we live well in the world? How do we walk in beauty? And we try and get an image before us we could mirror in our own lives of how to live well, how to live in this posture of self-giving love. A little, a little while ago, I was feeling stuck in some negative uh, patterns. And so I talked to my supervisor here at the church and uh, they said, you know what? I think you should go and see a life coach. I said, oh, a life coach? I don't want to do that. I said, I could do you some good. I'm like, all right, I'll give it a go. So I had my first meeting with a life coach and my first assignment was to say, all right, pick three adjectives, three descriptive words that uh, talk about the kind of person you hope to become, the kind of person you, you want to be. So I picked my three words and my coach said to me, all right, now go and find a, an image or a picture that embodies or displays those three attributes for you. And every day, spend five minutes looking at that image, 
thinking about those three adjectives being real in your life. I thought, oh man, this feels a little bit hokey, but okay, sure, I'll give it a go. So sure enough, I got my image and I propped it up where I'd see it every day. And, you know, every day for five minutes, I'd look at that image and I'd think about the kind of person I hoped to become. And honestly, it was transformative for me. It sounds, sounds amazing, but it started to change the, the color of my thinking. It started to shift these places I just felt stuck inside. I felt my desires begin to shift just by having a different image in front of me of what I wanted to mirror in the world, being more deliberate about what I'm trying to pay attention to formed an attachment with me. Again, like, I, think, I think that's why why we're here on Sundays to try and figure out what are we paying attention to in our lives and what attachments has that, has that forged in us? And perhaps there's a different way to say, Jesus, form in us an attachment as we give our attention to you moment after moment, week after week. God's, God's great desire is to make a healed humanity, one that's whole where all the disjointed bits are fixed, where our sexuality draws us out of ourselves towards the other, where his, his wrath, his strong commitment to set things right has taken effect, where there's peace all over earth as it is in heaven. And when Paul writes these words, there's some urgency in the tone. He's saying, hey, when it comes to sexuality and when it comes to wrath and desire, don't just keep that as little flashpoints, you know, in the big arc of God's story. Take this seriously. You know, if, if there are people here today who have been thinking about that the little fantasy that you toy around with of, you know, that sexual experience that, that could be, I think Paul would say, hey, cut that off. Put that to death. If you've got that, you know, that addiction that's perpetuated in your life. I think there'd be an encouragement today to say, hey, seek help, find some support and figure out how to have this, this new orientation to sexuality towards being pulled out of yourselves towards the other, something creative, something life-giving. Maybe for all of us, it's a encouragement to reassess, wait, what does our sexuality look like? Whether we're single, married, young or old, how are we pulled out of ourselves in ways that feel intimate and vulnerable? And where does that attach in the world in ways that are, are healthy and life-giving? We live in an incredibly complicated world. And every one of us has a very complex story when it comes to our sexuality. When we think about the picture of, of God's wrath, it'll have lots of complicated emotions around it. But I think I would say to us, hey, when things feel confusing, all those flashpoints of your life are, are feeling like they're overwhelming you, step back and remember the big arc of the story you're in. That God is making a new world, a new humanity that looks like this. That looks like the self-giving love of Jesus, where all that's disjointed is escorted to the grave. And all that's full of life and flourishing is brought up to be shared with others. Maybe as, as we end today, let's just pray and I'll, I'll guide us through a few movements of inviting God 
uh, into these sensitive spaces in our hearts. So join me now and let's close our eyes and just take a few seconds and talk to God about how you feel about your sexuality. Talk to God about those places where you have intimate attachments in your life. Where do you feel those deep connections? What might God's invitation be to you there? And as we continue to pray, let's invite God into a conversation around wrath and talk to God about what makes you feel nervous around his commitment to set everything right. What brings you comfort in that? Let's pray with God about how his wrath feels as we talk about it. And then finally here, let's take time to invite God into our deep, deep desires. The stuff that informs the, the longings of our life. What stuff's there? What, what are you mirroring in your life as those core drivers that motivate you? And could you invite Christ to be a part of that? to be the very picture you hope to mirror. God, our, our hearts are a mess and we're, we're desperate to connect. Help us to see the, the kind of story you've invited us into, a story where the cross is at the center of it all. And we invite you into the complexities of our sexuality and in your strong desire to heal everything that is out of joint, come and, and fill up our deepest longings. Give us the right image in front of us that we could be transformed to be like Jesus. Oh God, make us a new creation creation that knows how to mirror your desires. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.